It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Welcome back to the Fearless and Proud podcast and our final installment about Civil War women, soldiers, spies, and battlefield nurses. I'm your host, Jerry Willis. Today, we're looking at how women's lives were transformed by the experience of participating in the war. Did they consider themselves feminists? Not a bit, says Shelby Harrell Heidelbaugh, author of the book Behind the Rifle, Women Soldiers in Civil War Mississippi, and professor at Pearl River Community College. Like I've, I've talked about in my book, um, you know, these women weren't feminists. They weren't activists. They weren't trying to to fight for women's rights or, or whatever. They were just simply doing what a lot of the men did. We talked about the motivations earlier. But uh, future activists such as um, Susan B. Anthony, they pointed to the exploits of these women as evidence that women could be successful outside the home and deserved the right to vote, deserved rights, because they showed it on the battlefield doing what men did. The transformation for American women after the Civil War was huge. The foundation of that was their activity during the war. Susan B. Anthony described what must come next. Listen. When I speak of the inalienable rights of the Negro, I do not forget that these belong equally to women. Though the government shall be reconstructed on universal manhood suffrage, it yet will not be a true republic. Still, one half of the people will be in subjection to the other half, and the time will surely come when the whole question will have to be reopened and an accounting made with this other subject class. There will have to be virtually another reconstruction based on the duty of the national government to guarantee every citizen the right of self-protection, and this right, for woman as for man, is vested in the ballot. So even though they themselves weren't trying to fight for women's rights, uh, ultimately, of course, um, they did help secure women a lot of the rights that that we enjoy today the women the the current women fighting on on foreign lands serving in our military of course um they owe the women that i write about in my book a a, a debt of gratitude i guess you could say they are the reason why they're able to do what they they do today because these women were 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 motivated and um and took it upon themselves to do what they they weren't supposed to do But participating in the war required women to turn Victorian conventions on their head. Here's D.D. Blanton, a senior military archivist at the National Archives and author of They Fought Like Demons, Women Soldiers in the Civil War. I wanted to get you to talk a little bit about what you learned from these women's stories, what your takeaway was. I mean, oftentimes people try to make history contemporary, but it was a different time. Talk to me about your your kind of takeaway after doing all this research. Well, it was a different time. And and culturally, at least among the middle and upper classes, they had this whole notion of separate spheres of influence and that women were women's sphere of influence was in the home, that women made their mark on the world by being good wives and and better mothers and raising the next generation, and that men's sphere of influence was the public sphere, 
And so men were the movers, the shakers. Uh, and that's kind of the picture we have of Victorian women. And so your, your well-educated, your, your middle and upper class women, they contributed to the war effort by supply. They, like the sanitary fairs is what they were called. Women would throw these huge fairs and they would raise money to send clothing and socks and good food to the soldiers. And that was all considered very appropriate for women to do. Women entered uh, the war effort as nurses because that's what women did is, is in the mid-19th century. Most medicine was, was dealt with at home. It was rare for people to actually see a doctor. So the women of the family were the caregivers. They were the nurses. They were the doctors. They were the ones who learned herbal medicine from their grandmothers. It was actually controversial when women left the home to actually nurse in army hospitals because that was viewed as women going public. It turns out that the army absolutely had to accept women nurses. Nursing became a woman's profession because of the Civil War. It hadn't been before. And I mean, nurses were badasses, if I can say that, in, in their own right. But again, those were those were things that that middle and upper class women did to support the war effort. Did you come across any uh, kind of overt statements of patriotism, either from the Union side or the Confederate? Any interesting upfront statements of I'm in it to win it. This is the right thing to do. I mean, do you recall anything like that? Oh, sure. There, there was you know, the women who went to war because they really, really believed in the cause that they were fighting for. Of course, they spoke pretty much the same way that that the men did, you know, that they were that they were going to to throw the Yankee invaders out of their home or that they were going to save the Union. And what's always struck me about the women who were so fervently patriotic, they were patriotic for a country that would not allow them to vote. They lived in a time where their public participation was not wanted, not viewed very kindly, and yet they so loved their country even though one could argue their country didn't really love them, that they were willing to die for what they believed in. You know, these women really do deserve our remembrance and our respect because they were veterans. And some of them did die for their country. Once women started working as nurses, they were eagerly embraced. Even the press lauded these angels of the hospital. Here's Melissa DeVelvis, assistant professor of history at Augusta University in Augusta, Georgia. When I teach women's history, I basically say every time that women started to leave their uh, proper role of being the caretaker of the home, there was this idea that um, women were supposed to be these like moral pillars and Christian purity and that they should be like this place of when the man came home after working um, and he was the one dealing with the evils of politics where women should really stay away from those evils, um, that then uh, he would return to the spiritual guardianship 
and the the safety and comfort of the home. And it was woman's job to kind of be the the guardian of this, to raise the children, but really these ideas of like moral purity and Christian purity. Um, but this meant that it was improper for them to go out into the world and, as you mentioned, take on professions. But what so whenever we find that women are starting to slowly move into the professions, you'll find that they're very much tied to these ideas of traditional womanhood. And so when women become nurses, it's this idea that, well, you know, we, we nurse our families at home. And this time period, you would not want to go to a hospital. You would have the doctor come to you, especially if you're wealthy. And so they think about, well, we are at the bedsides of our family members um, and praying for them and keeping them company and, you know, like wiping the sweat off their brow when um, when they're sick at home. And so when, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, when the war happens, uh, these women start to be nurses because that's kind of what they did. at home. So they extend this logic out into the public sphere. Um, that being said, there is a lot of resistance to um, women nurses in hospitals. They often have to uh, report back to the Surgeon General saying, hey, they're not allowing me in here. Um, but there starts to be kind of this, this press that uh, has these poems about women being the angels of the hospital. And they're sitting, um, reading to them and writing letters and praying. So it's very much this domestic idea extended to the hospital. Um, in a way that uh, you would not have seen before the Civil War. Um, you also see women in the Sanitary Commission doing a ton of fundraising with these ladies' aid societies. And again, this idea of benevolent charity, sewing, um, hosting fundraisers, sewing uniforms, uh, and things like this, providing care packages. That's what a lot of these local aid um, places are doing. And so that is very much a ladies' um, a proper ladies position to do. So you'll see some of the first activity we have from women in the Civil War is within the realm of propriety. Um, that being said, some elite women did not want to be in that hospital and found it actually improper. Transitioning to a life without war wasn't always easy. Here's Dr. Kay Whitehead, PhD, professor of communication an African and African-American studies at Loyola University and author of Notes from a Colored Girl, the Civil War Pocket Diaries of Emily Frances Davis. She's talking about Harriet Tubman. If I were to meet her today, what would, what would that be like? What would she be like? What would I be struck by? Can you help me out there? I mean, because don't you, I just want to meet her. She, she is one of the people that I, I would love to, to meet and just sit at her feet. Um, and just listen to her stories. I see Harriet Tubman really uh, in four stages. Uh, Harriet Tubman, the young girl, Minty, uh, with her father, learning about the land in the Eastern Shore area of Maryland, uh, beginning to understand what her place was in the world, watching what was happening with the way she was treated and the way her family was treated. I, you know, Looking to first run away with her brothers. They did not make it. They all came back. And then she decided to go on her own. The idea that she was married uh, and what that meant leaving behind her husband, who was a free man, who stayed with her on the plantation and making her way up. And that's kind of the, the second stage I see of the life of, of Harriet Tubman. 
What did it mean to make your way to freedom alone and involuntarily choose to go back? That's the part that, that everyone talks about. But, but there's a third stage, and that's her work as a spy and as a scout, that she chose not to stay on the sidelines of the war. She easily could have. She easily could have stayed in the northern part of the country and not gotten directly involved. But she chose to put her body on the line as a woman and as an enslaved person the type of courage it took to do that. But this fourth stage that I just want to amplify for a moment, what was when she was up in Albany, New York, when she chose to get married again, she married a, a union soldier. Uh, there's all this talk and all this research that shows that Harriet Tubman never got paid for her work uh, with the union army. And she should have gotten paid for her work. Uh, her husband, who was younger than she was, actually did receive money from his work as a soldier. And that is what they used to live on. Those who, who met her and wrote about meeting her spoke about the, the fact that she was shy, um, that she was someone who listened more than she talked. Uh, she did not brag on what she had done. She didn't share a lot of the stories because there were people whose lives were still in danger. Uh, she was fiercely committed to her family and fiercely committed to creating a community, which is what she did in Albany, by making sure that not only did people who had made their way to freedom, but they lived very close to one another and created their own community. Like that's the Harriet Tubman I'd like to meet. After all those stages are behind her, I would like to find out, you know, why she chose to do it. What was it that kept her going? I want to know why, why it is when she went back home for the first time and she was trying to get her husband, John, to come with her. How does she save enough money to take him a suit that you're up in, in the North, you're a formerly enslaved person, and she saved enough money to get him a suit and take the suit back down to him with the hope that he would choose to come with her. Uh, that's some of the pain that I'd like to hear have her talk about. And I'd like her to talk about what it meant to, to be in love and what it was like for her to finally find a place of peace where her family members were free, her parents were free, and she had finally kind of had a community to call her own. Others had a comfortable life before the conflict broke out. Rose Greenow gained prominence in the Washington, D.C. socialite scene when she decided she wanted to do more to help the Confederacy as she always considered herself a Southern woman and became one of the most renowned spies during the war. Here's historian Catherine Clinton, Denman Professor of American History at the University of Texas at San Antonio. These women who step out, outside the circle of confinement of ladyhood are then damned by these males who believe that they were not proper. Well, smuggling, stealing information, um, wheedling out secrets is something that uh, might cause some impropriety, but it's all done in the cause of the nation, the cause of the Confederacy. And it's something that I was concerned about when I first started to encounter these spies and all the scouting and all the work they were doing. And yet it didn't seem to be incorporated into our tales of the South. And per you know, purposely, I think, um, in some cases, it's their roles are obscured because they were women ahead of their time. Why was she so dedicated to the Confederate cause? I think that she was someone who uh, was, I won't say that she was invested in um, ladyhood, um, because clearly she was working outside the boundaries. But I would say that she was... Um, you know, raised in a border state, but nevertheless, given the idea that um, the South was uh, 
where the forefathers of the country were, where the first few presidents were, that the South was really determining the future of the United States. And with this spat that broke out between the North and the South, which she felt would be reconciled um, very quickly. It didn't turn out that way, but she was someone who also was writing her reminiscences as the war went on, saw herself in the spotlight and, and took on that prominent role. I think that she was, as I said, a woman ahead of her time who, who ran a salon, a popular political salon in Washington. And she saw that she could be of the greatest service to her Confederate friends and colleagues and also um, serve a cause that she perhaps believed in, which was that of Southern white superiority. The new roles women took on were so far from the norm that when the war ended and these women soldiers and spies tried to share their stories, they were often not believed. Sure, the tale of Loretta Janetta Velezquez, Cuban-born, sent to the States for an education, becomes a soldier that fought in multiple battles. Or Sarah Edmonds, born in Canada, fled an arranged marriage, becomes a successful bookseller before a soldier, could easily sound embellished. Their stories bring aside to the Civil War not much talked about. Here's Dr. Luis Borrego, adjunct professor at Miami-Dade College and author of The Risen Phoenix. There's some historians who say, well, if she exaggerates at all, if some of it is false, if, if we're too eager to interpret it, you know, through a Hispanic lens, through a feminist lens, then we really can't take seriously what she's saying. And that's that's more or less the argument that that uh, William Davis makes. He's a, he's a historian who actually wrote a book called Reinventing Loretta Velasquez. And his position is almost the opposite. You know, we, we can't accept anything she says. It's too exaggerated. And the people who do accept it wholesale, um, they're not they're not real historians. They're, they need to stay in their lane as literary scholars, American studies scholars, Hispanic studies scholars. And while I agree with Davis that there is a lot in here that's suspect, I think you can have both and. You can make up military regimental records. It's difficult to invent sincere emotion bordering on PTSD. It's difficult to invent childhood tragedy of getting married, having children, your children die, and there's like a, a sadness that reflects on that. So I, I, I kind of take a middle ground. I don't accept everything she says. There's some things, e even, even Sarah Edmonds in her account will exaggerate. But I think on the whole, there are certain details that she has here, certain existential questions she asks herself that raise the question, well, maybe she was a con artist, maybe she was doing the book for money, but maybe she also did what she says she did. And, and I think it's, you know, we, we tend to think of the Civil War as North versus South, or we think of it as a story about the end of slavery. And it is those things. But what happens when we change the narrative of the Civil War and talk about women or talk about unconventional, you know, figures like Loretta Velasquez, Hispanics in the Civil War? How does that change how we think of the Civil War? Where in some cases, in her case, it turns the Civil War on its head. What you think is accepted about the Civil War goes out the window because she challenges us to think about the war in different ways. It's a very individual experience of self-identity and exploration. And that's what makes her compelling. 
Thank you for listening to this edition of the Fearless and Proud podcast. We hope you enjoyed our series about Civil War women, soldiers, spies, and battlefield nurses. Send us your suggestion for the next series on the accomplishments of American women. Find me at Twitter, at Jerry Willis FBN. Till next time, I'm Jerry Willis. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.